10.28 of Daniel 7, Daniel is deeply distressed. He's affected by what he's seen. He's moved in a very personal and passionate way about what he has seen. Sometimes our study of prophecy doesn't have all of the best results from it. In other words, sometimes our prophecy makes us only confused, or sometimes it makes us filled with knowledge rather than filled with a love and zeal for God. But as we look at some more principles today in our study, we're going to see how we personally can be moved in our spiritual life by the study of the forecasting of future events in prophecy. Now, last week we looked at verse 8 about the Antichrist or the little horn, and then in verse 9 and 10 about the oncoming of the Ancient of Days, about God the Father who held cord, and then in verse 11 and 12 of Daniel 7 we saw the casting out of the Antichrist or the defeat of the Antichrist, of which we'll note again in today's explanation of the vision but we barely looked at verse 13 and 14 and that is a beautiful vision of jesus christ and it says these words in my vision at night i looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming with clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days who led him into his presence he was given authority glory and sovereign power all peoples, nation, and men of every language worshipped him. That, that's, by the way, a fulfillment of what we see in Revelation chapter 7, how there are representatives of every tribe, language, people, and nation. And Daniel also has that same vision. That's why we are enthused about world evangelization, because we know in heaven there will be representatives from all people groups, and we want to get the good news to the nations and so there can be more worshipers around the throne in the middle of verse 14 it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed the first principle today on your outline about how to be moved by prophecy is simply this to grasp the greatness of jesus there's an incredible picture of jesus christ spelled out in verses 13 and 14. Interesting, it says that he was like the Son of Man. And if you note how Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, that is his favorite designation for himself. He stayed away from a confusing term like Messiah, because it, though he was the Messiah, that term held a lot of political connotations. He also did not primarily emphasize his deity, though he did refer to it and certainly received the worship of Thomas and, he, and, the, and the confession of Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but he wanted his emphasis in his teaching to be him to be referred to as the Son of Man. Why the Son of Man title? It's interesting because in ancient times, if you wanted to really describe someone, you would call them a son of something. If it was a rascal, scoundrel, sinner, they could be referred to as a son of perdition or of sin. The James and John in the Bible had an anger problem, and they were referred to as the sons of thunder. If you were wealthy, you could be called a son of 
riches. And the Son of Man, the, the title that Christ used from himself, likely in reference to Daniel, was Christ's way of saying, I am one of you all. But as we find from Paul's teaching about Christ in Romans chapter 5, that he is referred to as the second Adam, it's as though the first man did not fulfill what God intended ultimately man to be. And Jesus Christ is the one who shows us what true humanity should look like. Of course, he was intertwined with the amazing addition of him being the God-man, but in his references, he referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, there's a few different things that his use of the teaching of the Son of Man refers to. A, it refers to Christ's preexistence. In John 3.13, he spoke of him existing before time. In John chapter 8, he also told the angry crowd, before Abraham was, I am. So he referred to his preexistence. Also, it says in verse 3.14 of the book of John that it, the Son of Man referred to Christ's sufferings. He said the Son of Man must be lifted up. It was a reference to the cross of Christ. Also, the Son of Man, by use of that term, Christ taught us, see, his role as judge. We're told in John 5.27 that the Father has given the Son of Man authority to judge. And so these truths from the Scripture and this vision in Daniel should cause us to grasp the greatness of Christ in a fresh and real way. But sometimes Jesus, His character means less and less to us because our respect of Him diminishes maybe out of familiarity. We, it's dangerous to get too familiar with one that we should be respectful toward. I, remember, I have this memory of being in middle school, and a friend of mine, I was spending the night at his house, and we, there was a convenience store near his house, and we went to the store to get candy or something, and we were going back to his house, and I remember seeing a police car. And I don't exactly remember what we did. I think we waved at the policeman in, in maybe a, a silly way, and he thought we were being catty toward him, and he motioned us over to the police car, which as a... As a Southern Fried Baptist preacher's kid, that was my first time to be motioned to a police car. And he gave us a talking to there in Southwest Fort Worth and said, you guys need to be respectful to a police officer. You don't speak to us with respect. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. I thought he was about to pull out the handcuffs. And I want you to know... I have had the utmost respect for officers since that day. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I, I really think that changed the way I viewed them. And sometimes, if you have been in trouble with the law a great deal, I have seen men who have had run-in after run-in with the law, and they have virtually no respect for the badge for the vehicle. It's just another person, just another day. I spoke with the sheriff uh, this week at the National Day of Prayer, and he pointed out a guy to me that he saw over the distance and said, that guy, when he wants a meal, he breaks the law on purpose, and he comes into our jail most every single week for some, for some little misdemeanor. Now, maybe we've gotten so used to disrespecting Jesus 
that we have grown cold to the greatness of his character. He is the Son of Man that God has given glory and power and sovereign honor and all nations will stand before him and worship him. And if we're going to be moved by the forecasting of the future, we must grasp the greatness of Jesus. Now in verse 15 and 16, we have an unusual picture of the prophet as far as we've seen up to this point. It says, I, Daniel, now he's speaking in first person and says, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Well, none of us should blame him. (laughs) These are overwhelming visions and he was understandably moved and disturbed. But then it says, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. And so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. So Daniel is having a vision. And this is such a supernatural moment in his vision that he saw what is likely an angel of the Lord in his vision. And in his distressed state, he goes to the angel and says, Could you tell me what all of this means? What is going on here? I believe one of the principles that Daniel demonstrates there for us is number two on your outline about how to be moved by prophecy is simply this, to come to terms with your limits. How often do we have to do this in life? I remember on a mission trip to East Africa several years ago, I took a team of young people and we were working with a great group of youth from the uh, a national church there and on one of our afternoons someone brought up the idea of us playing a soccer game and someone thought it'd be fun to have USA versus Tanzania and it was the heat of summer and we found out quickly that was not a good idea they were used to running up and down this field and they we never saw sweat on them and they didn't ever huff and puff and they'd never heard of a water break they're like, why do you need water? So we, after 10 minutes, we realized that we had to pretty much come to the end of ourselves and accept our limits. We can't do this. Maybe you've had to do that in a setting, and it's a tough thing to come to term with our limits at something. But Daniel, in his distressed state, realized, hey, I don't know what this means. I don't know what's going on. It wasn't that he had some psychic paranormal ability to interpret things. Every time that we see Daniel in this prophetic interpretive role, it was the work of God in his life. And so as we approach prophecy and sometimes get confused by the language, or maybe it's any Bible passage and you're trying to have some time alone with God and nurture your soul by reading the word, yet you're troubled by a difficult passage. Do what Daniel did, and you don't have to ask an angel, but we get the privilege of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, give me insight into your word. The same is true when you have a a difficult time in life, and you're going through deep waters. Rather than pulling yourself up and fighting through the waters, we humble ourselves and come to the end of ourselves and realize our great inability and limits and call upon the name of the Lord for grace and wisdom and strength and insight well the good thing was when daniel went to the lord for help the first thing that god did was gave him hope yes there were some difficult things in the prophecy that we note but he fills daniel 
first of all, with hope. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. We noted that there is a similarity between Daniel 7 and Daniel 2, and that likely these four beasts represent four kingdoms that will be overthrown one after another in time. Yet there's something different and unique about the fourth beast, likely referring, as we'll see later, to a future kingdom. Well, verse 18 says, But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So Daniel was distressed. He saw all these visions, even the vision of God, and it moved him to the point where he was disturbed within. And the first thing that God did was breathe hope into his heart. And so a third principle we see about how to be moved by prophecy is number three, to remember the great hope for God's people. How many of us are better at looking at the Antichrist than at the hope of God? How many of us are better at looking at the negative and the deep waters of life rather than the truth that God rules, that He's in control, and that we are saints of the Most High? You know, it's human nature to have something to want to look forward to. When you're finished with something that was positive, we often think about what we have to look forward to. Some of you are going, yes, that's why we have dinner after lunch, because as soon as lunch is over, we're wondering what we have for dinner. Now, when we don't have anything in life to look forward to, there's a natural sense of distress. I remember my youngest son sort of learning that as he grew, we'd walk into a store and he would want to something he saw and he liked and if it was like some expensive toy type thing or a big item we'd say no we might get that for your birthday well he heard that and he was starting to figure out that he never really got anything unless it was his birthday or maybe christmas as well well his birthday is in late september and you all know when christmas is as he was starting to figure out how long a week was a week is a long time you know what's really long is a month as he got into kindergarten and got into maybe first grade, he was figuring out how long everything was. And there was something that he saw in January that he wanted. And we just had his birthday. We just had Christmas. And in January, he saw something or heard of something he wanted. And I said, you know what? We'll get that for your birthday. He wasn't sure when his birthday was. And he asked me, you know, when's my birthday? And I said to him, it's in nine months. And his face grew long with sorrow. Nine months all hope was drained out of him immediately. Have you ever felt that way, that there is nothing to look forward to in life? Well, as believers, we have absolutely no reason to live that way. We have every reason to be filled with hope because we get to know the God of hope. It's not that we're void of trials. Many of us have been through trials this very week that are heart breaking but we have the god of hope that told us that the saints of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever yes forever and ever now who exactly are the saints and what is this kingdom well maybe the simplest way to explain who these saints are is that they are the saved of god they're those that have a relationship with god we noted, you noted last week that we're having tonight an end times discussion and your view of prophecy in general might give you a more specific breakdown of 
who the saints refer to specifically, but most agree that the kingdom is a reference to what is they described in Revelation chapter 20 as the millennial kingdom or the period of the millennium, a thousand year rule after the return of Christ before the great white throne judgment, the end of time, that we will reign and rule for a thousand year period with Christ and the saints will be given that kingdom and then once we stand before God, this kingdom of millennium turns into the new heavens and the new earth that goes on forever and ever and ever without the presence of sin or evil anywhere. No more mourning or crying or sickness or pain. It goes on forever. And then he says, yes, forever and ever. That's a lot of hope. And that's ours if we know Christ in a personal way. Now, in verses 19 through 26, there were certainly dark parts of this vision and this dream. And it's sort of divided into two sections. One is the vision where Daniel is looking around himself and describing what he sees. And then the last part, 23 through 26, is where the angel comes in and taps him on the shoulder and says, now this is what's going on. And much of what that section of the vision is about involves number four on your outline, and that is this, to understand the fate of evil. It seems in our day often that evil has the last word and that evil is reigning, whether it's temptation or whether it's Satan himself or evil influences in this world. That It has the upper hand, and this, this part of the vision shows us that evil has a certain and definite fate. Now, what Daniel saw himself in verse 19 is this, Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victim and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints and the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Now that's Daniel looking around and he sees several different traits and notes about the Antichrist. Matter of fact, not only are humans longing for something to look forward to, we're also big into speculation. Have you noticed we can't help but speculate things? As soon as an election is over, it seems like the next day the analysts are going, who's going to run in the election four years from now? And they talk about that for two or three years, and then the last year before the election they talk about, well, who's going to win? It's just seems to be the way we're wired to have to speculate about everything. Everyone speculates, if you're a sports fan, about the draft. Who's going to go where, in what order, and what team will pick who. We have to sort of guess ourselves to death. But you will never find a verse in Scripture encouraging the people of God to give full energy to speculation about the Antichrist. But nonetheless, we've had an embarrassing history of doing so. In the, in the Middle Evil times and in the period of Reformation, everybody thought that the Pope was the Antichrist. Many uh, Catholics themselves that weren't happy with papal decisions felt that was the case. Of course, in our 20th century, the speculations have run high. Most evangelical 
Christians felt that it had to be Stalin that was the Antichrist in the 20s. Okay, so we missed him. We know that it's Hitler. Certainly he's taking over the world, and he's from Europe. There could be maybe some type of revived Roman-esque empire coming out from him. Okay, we missed him. Could it be Mussolini? And then American predictions ran wild from everyone to JFK. No, it had to be Henry Kissinger. He had that foreign influence in him, and now he's coming here to set up the evil empire. Do you know what, why a lot of people felt that in the 80s that Ronald Wilson, I say a lot, there were, it, it's at least recorded that Ronald Reagan could have been the Antichrist? Because if you look in the 13th chapter of Revelation, it's, it describes the number of the beast as six, 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 the mark of the beast. His, that's what his number will be. It represents evil. And Ronald Wilson Reagan had three names, and all of them had six letters. <laughs> That's obvious. That's like, like Walgamot or something. He was, you know. Now, there have I remember in preaching in Amarillo area in the late '90s, there was a preacher there that got airtime and some, and some popularity, saying that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. Powerful Prince Charles that is a, a figurehead has got to be the Antichrist. You know what? It, we embarrass ourselves with continued speculation. But we don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know when he's coming. But we do know that he is. <laughs> and there are several traits the Bible tells us the, of this historical person that likely will be some traits about him. The first is A under number four, that he is both deceptive and charismatic. There's a, a charm and a natural pull from him. And at the end of verse 20, Daniel knows that he is more imposing than all the others. And he had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. He, he was intimidating with his demeanor. Now, I, some of, many of you have read the books or seen the movies by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins called Left Behind. And while I have a different perspective of some of the theological angles from the book, I think that they did an interesting job of creating some character development. Now, the Antichrist in the books is a very imposing figure by the name of Nikolai Carpathy. And if you saw the attempt at a movie, it was interesting the power that he had with his eyes to get people to do whatever he wanted them to do and ultimately to take over religion and get the whole world, except those who had the seal of God on them, to worship him. It's likely not a bad interpretation of what it could be like because we know that he is a very imposing figure. We also note in verse 21, and as we'll see in verse 25 in a moment, that certainly one of his main aims is B, that he is destructive. He seeks to destroy the true worship of God and the people of God. But notice now the angel steps in and sort of tells Daniel some of the meaning. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom. That will appear on earth. It'll be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come up after this kingdom. After them, another king will rise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue the three kings. This is likely a reference to what we talked about last week of a revived Roman empire in the last days. 
And then it says he will speak against the Most High. This is the reference to the Antichrist. And oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. Or he'll change everything to make it point to him and make it serve his purposes. Then it says the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. What does it mean for the saints to be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time? Well, one of the things this means, first of all, see under number four that the Antichrist will be scheduled. It should never incur, uh, pop into our minds that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wants, for as long as he chooses to do. This is likely a reference to the middle of a period described before the time of the millennium, the thousand-year reign, known as the Great Tribulation. And the Antichrist, right in the middle of it, sets up his three-and-a-half-year reign, and havoc wreaks upon the earth afterwards. The, the reason we get that is because in the book of Revelation, there are two different time periods mentioned, 1,260 days, and then the term 42 months. And Daniel is consistent with that same idea because many feel that the word time means a year. And so if time is a year, and times, plural, is two years, and half a time is half a year, you add that up and you get a period of three and a half years right in the middle of the seven-year period of tribulation. And so know that the Antichrist's days are scheduled, and there will be a beginning, and there will be an end, and I would say ultimately it will be a glorious end for those that know Christ personally, because D, under your outline, the fate of evil D will be ultimately defeated. Look at verse 26. It says this, But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. I like the sound of that. That God rules over evil and will bring it to an end. Now in verse 27 it says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints the people of the Most High, likely another reference to the millennial reign. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and his rulers will worship and obey him. It's a, in heaven we worship the Lord Jesus, and we do his bidding at all times. Now in verse 28, doesn't this sound like some of your prayer times? This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. The ideal time for us to pray is when we're troubled, we go to the Lord, we give our burdens to God, we leave them there, and we leave full of peace. That's how it's supposed to work. Hopefully that's how it usually works. But all of us, if we're at all honest, know the pain of re going before the Lord with a sorrowful heart, casting our burdens on the Lord, but not leaving them there. We kind of like those little yo-yo balls where we, we, you chunk it out and there's a string and it comes right back. We give it to the Lord and then it comes right back. And so we leave the presence of God just as distressed as we did before. This is a we almost wish that verse 28 said, and he was filled with hope and went rejoicing and praising God. But he's distressed. Once again, this is a major prophetic moment. He saw a very troubling vision. And so we can't blame him for his distress but I think what's happening is it all happened so quick that he did not allow the character of God and the glory of what God has professed and the, the hope of the coming kingdom to sink in. It's as though he's still looking at the 
trouble that the Antichrist will wreak and the, the pain that he may be, that his God's people might go through and there's hurt in his heart. And, and so a fifth principle this morning about how to be moved by prophecy is simply this, let the truth of God's kingdom sink in. If we ever allow the sovereignty of God, the love of God, and the wisdom of God to sink deep within our hearts when we go before God in prayer, we leave differently. Let's don't leave this morning just as distressed as when we came here. Let's allow the truth of who God is, His great rule over all things, to finally and truly sink into our souls. As we consider this powerful passage you know, a few folks last week told me, you know, that sermon was harder to follow than usual. That's because it is harder to preach than usual. And it will require our thinking and our asking the Lord for His grace to understand His truth. And this morning, the question is this, what will be your response to this incredible vision of God? Do you have the hope of God that indeed you are one of His saints? You are one of the children of God that have come to know Him in a personal way? Maybe you've Receive Christ in your life, but you're allowing the distresses of this life to have the final word rather than the truth of God to sink down deep within. As we consider this passage, let's take a moment and bow before him as we enter into a time of response. Living God, thank you that you have filled us with hope as your, as your people and that we are called to a life full of hope. And I'd like to ask, Lord, that you would engineer circumstances today to draw people to your truth. That you would open up eyes and hearts and doors and make a name for yourself today. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is coming and it is coming forever. We praise you and ask that you'd make a name for yourself today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. And just